What's going on, everybody? Hardest part of the ring. Back with another apron bump. And boy, howdy. Today is TNA. TNA Turning Point 2004. Woof. Um, this one was a weird one. It was very... I will say this. It was a very TNA show. If nothing else, this show was the most TNA show I've ever seen in my life, I think. Um, and I mean that good and bad. Probably more so on the bad side, but there was some good on this show. In fact, I would, I would go as far as to say that the good on this show was some of the best stuff that TNA ever produced. Specifically the main event, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But man... While the good was really good, the bad was really bad. But, um, man, definitely, like, an interesting watch. I was about to say a fun watch, but not everything was super fun to watch. But it's interesting, and it's fascinating to kind of look back here at, um, you know, because this is all part of my journey and looking through all of the, the wrestling alternatives of the 2000s. You know, last month I did uh, Ring of Honor's first show. And then before that, we went into TNA Victory Road 2004. Now, if you remember, if you haven't listened to that episode, first of all, give it a listen. It would provide a lot of context for this one. But Victory Road was a month previous to Turning Point. And that was their first ever three-hour pay-per-view. Because they, you know, they got out of the asylum finally, I think by like maybe June, July of this year. Because Turning Point here is in uh december just for context and i think they've been in the impact zone about five or six months so they're making moves they're on fox sports one i believe it's fox sports one and um but they're not at spike yet so this is kind of a weird transition period in between the asylum years and their like peak years at spike almost kind of a lost era if you really think about it not one of the best eras of TNA, but also not necessarily the worst. Um, but we're talking about the show right here, Turning Point 2004. There were some really iconic moments, you know, for better or worse. Some things that defined TNA occurred on this show. And I wasn't really aware of that when I first put it on. But man, some big stuff happened, including Cookie Gate. Cookie Gate. You know, like the dessert cookies. Let me fill you in. So, so in the weeks leading up to this show, TNA have they basically claimed that? Um, so obviously they they film in Orlando in the Impact Zone, and you know during one of their their Impact TV shows, they had a little like segment where it was basically a black screen with some white text, right? And it was basically going over how WWE came to Orlando to film a commercial. Now, obviously, that you know, being in a similar area, TNA is going to take advantage of that because in this era of TNA, really TNA as a whole always did this, but really, really specifically in this era, TNA was did everything they could to take jabs at WWE. People think AEW does that, but man, you watch TNA in 2004, AEW feels completely mellow. AEW is at least subtle and is, is at least, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, a little a little implied when they take shots at WWE. But TNA, you have Mike Tanay and Don West at the commentary table, like, literally saying, WWE is ruining our... or whatever the fuck they said, but you know what I mean. But anyways, Cookie Gate. Cookie Gate. So the premise of Cookie Gate... Sorry, I keep saying it over and over again, but the premise of it, WWE is filming a commercial in TNA's territory, so to speak. So TNA gets a few of their wrestlers, a few of their superstars, a few of their personalities to bring cookies and balloons to quote unquote, welcome WWE to Orlando. This is, you know, like I said, this is around the time where TNA was really trying to get WWE's attention. They're very desperate and hungry to, you know, move the needle on WWE's radar. In fact, it was like a year or two after this where Road Dog and Billy Gunn reunited in TNA and called themselves Voodoo Ken Mafia, which the initials being VKM, Vince McMahon's initials, if you're, if you're not aware. So they're doing everything they can to, to call out Vince, you know, the, with the, the Voodoo Ken Mafia recreating, trying to rec recreate DX, you know, 
how they invaded WCW. They're trying to do the same thing with TNA inv- invading WWE. And that's what they're doing here. Even though this is pre-VKM, the, uh, the intention is still the same, right? They're trying to create an invasion of WWE under the guise of welcoming them with cookies and balloons. So th- it's a whole segment here later in the show, and we'll get to it when we get to it. But in the weeks leading up to the show, they're like, Mike Tanay and Don West are like, so we have footage of uh, WWE coming here to Orlando, uh, but they don't want us to show it. They really, they're threatening to sue us. So we're going to leave it up to the TNA fans. We're going to allow you to vote whether or not we should show this footage. Now, I don't know if it was a real vote or not, but allegedly they let the TNA fans vote and they all voted. Their choices were show the footage of WWE or don't show the footage and avoid getting sued. Now, I guess the whole, like, it's like, you might be asking yourself, why wouldn't WWE want this footage? What's so scandalous about it? Apparently, WWE was very, like, hostile towards TNA, I guess. That's really all there was to it. They were very vague in the weeks leading up to this, obviously building to this moment, right? Um... And they, sh- they do. They show it all later in the show. Really uh, <laughs> interesting. I'll just say that. But re- <laughs> they're like selling this pay-per-view off of this footage they have, which is hilarious considering, you know, TNA's trying to be the alternative, but they're really just biting at the ankle of WWE, which really encapsulates TNA's issues as far as, you know, why they couldn't rise above a certain level. And it's kind of a concept that AEW has some similarities with which is kind of discouraging as far as whether or not they will have any mainstream appeal and it's funny to see you know the uh the similarities and the parallel actions that they've taken between tna and aw but we'll get to that we'll get to that so with that but let's just get right into the show right so god right away right away it's just nonsense they have a video package in the beginning and it is all narrated by the kings of wrestling, not Chris Hero and Claudio Castagnoli. The kings of wrestling being Jeff Jarrett, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hardest part of the ring, that seems just like a store brand shitty version of the NWO. My response to that would be, you are absolutely correct. (laughs) It is awful. You know, TNA's not only are they trying to get the attention of WWE, but they're trying to recreate magic that WCW created, and they're not trying to build their own identity. Now, that being said, they did do a few things during this show that were their own, and as time would go on, they would kind of start to move more towards being their own their own brand and having their own identity. But this period here in 2004, man, it was a uh, it was a rebuilding year. Or a building year, I guess we should say. But but anyways, the show opens up, video package, Kings of Wrestling are narrating it. Now, are they standing in front of a green screen? Yes, of course. Why wouldn't they be? They are in, they're driving like a, uh, a convertible Cadillac or some sort of car. And they're all dressed like Elvis. Get it? Because Kings of Wrestling, do you get it? Do we need to beat you in the head with this some more? <laughs> the name itself is already generic as fuck, but now they're dressing as Elvis to make it even more corny. God, but they're they're driving a car in front of a green screen, a really bad green screen, just talking shit, you know, kind of building themselves up, t- talking about how they're going to own TNA and whatnot. And um, it just really sets the tone for a very strange night because Scott Hall and Kevin Nash clearly didn't give a shit about TNA. Whether it's in their promos in the ring or, or segments like this or in the match that they're going to be in later in the show. They clearly are there for a paycheck and are clearly just looking to have a light schedule and make money. It's like so transparent and it's almost sad to watch because TNA is really looking for these big names to put eyes on their product. You know, they did it in their last pay-per-view when they brought Jimmy Snuka, Roddy Piper, um... Like that's when they introduced Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. You know, they got Jeff Hardy coming in. You got like Jacqueline coming in. Like people, they're, they're bringing in all these ex WWE, WCW guys, trying to create a buzz and ultimately it never really panned, panned out to much. Um, 
but it's really funny to see these like early stages of it, like trying as hard as they can and as desperately as they can to make a name for themselves. And really, WWE never really gave them the time of day, which is, um, you know, you want you want to compete with WWE, you got to do something new. That's how WCW ha- had so much success. That's why WCW went 83 weeks in a row beating WWF in the ratings is because they were doing something new and fresh, something new and fresh that actually forced WWF and Vince McMahon to completely change their structure of their shows and completely alter the tone, alter the characters and just have a completely different product. WCW and their fresh and their fresh business and their fresh storylines and characters forced WWE's hand. That's how you get their attention by doing something new, something unique. Unique is the key word here. And TNA, for the most part, just, you know, as an overlapping theme throughout the years, just wasn't unique enough. And they really just came out as WWE light. Now, there's a period, you know, maybe in the next year or two where they do have their own identity, where the X division is the focal point. They got, um, you know, the world title scene kind of is starting to hit its stride a little bit. You know, from top to bottom, the tag team division has had a lot of high moments in TNA as well. The knockout division really started the women's revolution before WWE even thought about doing that. So TNA had a lot of high points and they did have moments where they were doing something unique and different. But Turning Point 2004 is not a good example of that. And we're going to tell you why. So first match, we have the NWA tag team Titles on the line. We have the champions, the Three Life Crew, who is a team of Road Dog and R Truth versus Team Canada, a team of Bobby Roode and Eric Young. Now, all future WWE guys right here um, really just goes to show how um, everybody just comes back, man. Everybody just comes back and everybody seeks greener pastures in WWE for better or worse. But tag team title match. Road Dog and R-Truth come out, or sorry, BG James and Ron Killings come out. And, uh, <laughs> fuck, he's Road Dog. He's not BG James. Road Dog comes out, does his whole mic shtick again, just grasping to that past WWE fame, which, you know, I mean, he made a lot of money doing it. So can't really blame him too much. But Road Dog, he's doing his whole mic shtick. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the New Age Outlaws. Uh, what, what was it? tag team champions of the world? You know all that, all that stuff. But he's like remixing it in a TNA way, so it's no longer is it the New Age Outlaws. It's we're not one, we're not two, but we're the three live crew. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Team Canada comes out. Bobby Roots. I said this before. I think in the last TNA TNA review I did. But what the fuck is going on with Bobby Roots' hair? His hair and his beard suck, dude. In 2020 today, Bobby Roode has one of the best beards in the business. But God, dude, he has this like 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 mop on his head, this greasy black mop on his head, and a god awful goatee. Not even not a goatee, like a a goat. Is that what you call it when it's just like a strip down the middle of your chin? It's like hanging. It, it looks disgusting, dude. If they, if he was trying to get heat that way i guess it's effective whatever you gotta do man but um so yeah we got three life crew versus team canada for the tag team titles team canada obviously heals because do 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 foreign and honestly i mean the match is fine it wasn't anything to write home about it wasn't offensively bad but it was very forgettable um but ultimately man it's it's bad if you're trying to be an alternative to wwe that's the real issue here because look, you have Road Dog and K-Quick or R-Truth, whatever. You have Road Dog, R-Truth, and you have an evil Canadian faction, which literally at this point, WWE just did with the Un-Americans. I know they had Regal in there, but you know, Christian and Test, evil Canadians, right? Or even Edge and Christian, evil Canadians. So to sum up, in this match, TNA is having guys in Road Dog and R-Truth that they yanked from WWF, and they're doing a gimmick that they yanked from WWF. And now they're having a match between these four guys, and they're trying to paint themselves as, as an alternative. And that's the issue here. Like I said before, they're not being alternative. They're just being a mid-level, a small store brand version of WWE. And nobody is going to change the channel from Raw 
to impact when you have that kind of product. I know they weren't at the same time at this point, but you know what I'm saying, right? Um, but like I said, the match was fine. Um, I, dude, R-Truth, man, that dude does not age. It is insane. Really, really all of these guys. I mean, other than, other than Road Dog, all these guys are still, you know, wrestling at a pretty high level, right? I know Eric Young just recently got released and Bobby Roode hasn't been on TV in a while due to, you know, travel restrictions, but they're all still in it, man. And they're all performing at a high level. R-Truth was definitely a lot quicker here, um, but he looked the same. He was a lot more high flying than he is now, but he he still had that same energy. He was still dancing just as fast, and Bobby Roode has only gotten more jacked. And Eric Young is pretty much the same, but I think that's a testament to his work ethic as well. So considering this was 16 years ago, right? So fine little match here. The Canadians win with an outside interference by Johnny Devine. Now I guess that's a new member, or was he a previous member that is returning? I meant to research it, but then I just didn't care. Um, <laughs> so Johnny Devine interferes in this match. Now, what does he hit BG James with? What weapon? So they're they're a Canadian team, right? So what? Hmm. People in people in the writers' room. What can the Canadian team hit him? With? Oh, I know. A hockey stick wrapped in a Canadian flag because Canada. Eh? Christ, dude. <laughs> what the fuck? Whatever, hockey stick wrapped in a Canadian flag. Johnny Devine hits BG James with it, gives the Canadians the win. New tag team champions, Team Canada. Hip, hip, hooray. Then after that, we have a little promo from Dusty Rhodes, the director of authority, which, you know, he's the fucking general manager, okay? They're just trying... Hey, look, TNA's trying to be different here a little bit, right? They're not calling him the general manager or the commissioner, they call on him the Director of Authority. Yikes. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so we have Dusty here, a little backstage segment, essentially just threatening WWE <laughs> that they're gonna they're gonna show the footage or whoever Dusty talks. I can't do it. But basically he's just threatening to you know, he's claiming that the fans voted, they had a poll, and TNA is gonna be for the fans. Oh, I could go into a whole podcast on the phrase for the fans. Fuck you. But um, that's that's what they're trying to do here. Maybe a little sloppily executed, but trying to put over how they put a poll out to whether or not they want to show this footage, and it's all tied into fan interaction and how they're trying to be close-knit with the fans and not a corporation like the WWE. The concept and the premise is fine, but like I said, the execution is a little corny. But regardless, love Dusty Rhodes, but this was silly. Then after that, we have... A six-man tag match. We have Sanjay Dutt, Hector Garza, and Sonny Siaki versus Kid Cash, Michael Shane, and Frankie Kazarian. A lot of names there. A lot of names that people might recognize. Sanjay Dutt, Frankie Kazarian, both guys that were with TNA for forever. And um, I know Kazarian's still wrestling in AEW along with uh, his SCU mates. Sanjay Dutt, is he still wrestling? I think he popped up in Impact kind of recently, didn't he? He's probably still wrestling somewhere. Um, Hector Garza, obviously the uncle of Angel Garza, who we see on Monday Night Raw. Uh, Kid Cash, big name in ECW. Not familiar with Sonny Siaki or Michael Shane outside of you know this universe here, but some pretty significant name value in this match. Uh the Don Sanjay Dutt finally ditched those awful pants that he wore in the last pay-per-view. These like baggy gold pants. Awful, awful. He's finally wearing tights. Um but the match itself was okay. You know, just like the opening match, it was fine. Probably a little better than the opening match. But um not a match I would go back and watch or anything like that. The heels had uh control most of the match, which again it's like a WWE style match, which again you know, there's they're like I, I keep reiterating it, but it's still relevant. They're being too much like WWE here. You you have the heels having control most of the match, a lot of rest holds, and they were doing this con this thing, which really annoys me. I mean, I I see it all the time. Not so much recently. I haven't seen it, but like in this era, I saw it a lot, and before this, I saw it a lot. The heels would make like a like a clap noise, right, when the ref is has their back to them, and that would. Essentially, like, they were trying to make the ref think that they tagged. 
But there are so many situations where the ref doesn't let the guy in the ring unless he sees the tag. But on this case, he just heard it, so it was fine. Lack of consistency there really bugs me. Um, and it bugs me in this match because it's like, why would the ref allow it, first of all? It just makes him look dumb because he keeps... They, they literally did this like six or seven times. It's like, how dumb is the ref where he can't keep his eyes on the action for more than five seconds? But it's also dumb because like, what's the advantage? There are a lot of cases where they literally, they had they had the, the baby face controlled and they could have just went and tagged their partner, but they opted to just make the noise and the other guy came in. It's like it didn't really provide an extra advantage, which I get they're trying to, you know, be sneaky heels, but ultimately it didn't really help them any extra. It was just a silly thing they did, but whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the hot tag, I think it was a Dutt made the hot tag to Hector Garza. And when Garza came in, man, that was a, that, that was a damn good hot tag. Uh, Garza was flying all over the place. He's kind of more like a jacked up version of Angel and um, did a sick moonsault, man. That, the, the, like I said, the guy's a big guy. But that moonsault had some serious height and hang time. Um, and then, you know, Sanjay Dutt gets thrown by Sonny Siaki to the outside. <laughs> he, like, again, got so much air. He did, like, a like two fucking front flips to the outside. Really good hot tag. Really good um, sequence of moves at the end. <laughs> and then fucking Tracy, who is the manager of the heels, get, climbs to the top rope again with the referees back to them. She climbs up to the top rope and hits, hits, um, I think it was Garza. She hits him with her finishing move called Pie in the Sky. It's like a senton where she basically throws her vagina at the wrestler standing in the ring. Like a molly go around without the, the flip in the beginning, basically. But she calls it Pie in the Sky, which is hilarious. Um, oh no, she, she attempts to do it on the Garza but misses and actually hits Michael Shane, causing a whole ruckus, a whole hullabaloo. And then uh, Garza's able to take advantage and hits him with a tornillo, which is basically a, uh, a twisting senton, like a phoenix senton. Looked really good. Um, definitely knocked the fucking wind out of Michael Shane with that one. But tornillo gets Garza the win, along with his teammates Sanjay Dutt and Sonny Siaki. You know, the last pay-per-view, they had a um, like a gauntlet-style match where Hector Garza won. And now here he is again, winning on a pay-per-view. So it seems like they have big plans for Hector Garza, which is interesting because I really don't remember him being in TNA. So I don't know how long he lasts or what happens with his push, if it amounts to anything. But at this point, December 2004, they apparently have some big plans for this guy. So we'll see what happens there. But um, pretty solid match overall, I guess. <laughs> Next match. Serengeti survival match. Monty Brown versus Abyss. Now, you're probably asking me right now. Hey, hardest part of the ring. What the fuck is a Serengeti survival match? Well, let me tell you. You can only win by pinfall, submission, or getting thrown on the tens of thousands of thumbtacks. Not thumbtacks. Tens and thousands. Tens of thousands of thumbtacks. Thank you, Don West and Mike Tanay for repeatedly bashing our heads in with, with how many fucking tacks are there. They got like two bags, you know, like Mick Foley or whoever would, they would pull out a bag with tacks in it, right? So they got two of these bags on either side of the ring, which I guess represents each of their, you know, whatever, respective bags of tacks. You don't have to use both of them. You just have to throw your opponent on a vague amount of them tacks. Um, so here's the match. So first of all, I, I noticed it in this match. It may have occurred in the other matches, but I, I one thing that I loved that TNA did with how they produced everything and portrayed everything, I loved how they had two different entrance tunnels on opposite sides of the arena. Because that's one thing that's always kind of like bothered me a little bit of WWE. You have these two guys are about to have a match, right? Really personal, personal struggle between the two. They just want to tear each other's heads off. But for some reason, they're able to kind of <laughs> restrain themselves and come out of the same entrance way. They're both able to stand in gorilla with each other without fighting each other, even though they have this personal issue with each other. TNA, you know, acknowledged that and had the guys come in at different points of the arena, which is a little detail, but it's a detail that I like that they did. Um, so the two guys come out, Monty Brown, Abyss, 
two big dudes, two monsters, about to go at it. Serengeti Survival. Just want to make sure you guys know the name of the match. Serengeti Survival. <laughs> um, good match, though, I will say. Pretty good match. It was, you know, two big guys hitting each, other's, hitting each other with weapons. It was that kind of match. But that's kind of what you expected coming in here. Um, I mean, they were really treating Monty Brown like he was a star here. I, I when, when I came into TNA, as far as watching it live as it was happening, I think Monty Brown was already out of there or he was on his way out. And um, I never really got to see this period where Monty Brown was a huge, huge name. Now, it's interesting because you don't see a lot of guys, homegrown quote-unquote guys in TNA at this point. You have AJ Styles, PD Williams, but other than that, I mean, a few X Division guys, that's pretty much it. Monty Brown wasn't a guy that was in WCW. He wasn't a guy that was in WWE. However, what he was, was a formal, former football star. Now, were they trying to bring legitimacy to TNA by bringing a legitimate quote-unquote athlete and pushing him to the moon? Probably. But Monty Brown, he wasn't just this novelty sports act. Monty Brown was fucking awesome, dude. Big, jacked-up dude, but he had so much charisma, and he was so believable. His pounce finisher was awesome, dude. You see guys recreate it now. I think, um, who does it? I think Titus O'Neil did it for a while. Keith Lee does it, I believe. You know, it's a move that plenty of people have jacked over the years because so, it looks so awesome and so believable when you're, you know, the appropriate size to be able to pull off that move. And Monty Brown absolutely was. Um, and Abyss here, peak Abyss. You know, some may say he's a ripoff of Kane, but who gives a fuck, man? He had his own spin on it. Yeah, he had a mask and long hair and he was tall, but that was really the extent of it, in my opinion. Um, really really believable looking monster abyss was and now we have these two guys clashing here so they start fighting on the outside monty brown comes in with an injury because on a previous episode of impact he was attacked backstage by abyss so he has injured ribs here um but once they start fighting abyss rips off the tape to expose the ribs which in my opinion you know as a viewer wouldn't it be wouldn't it be more effective to leave the tape on because that kind of highlights the injury because after he ripped the tape off, I kind of just forgot he had injured ribs, quote-unquote. And he didn't really do much to sell it. Did I remember? Maybe he did. But, um, actually, you know what? I, I take that back. There was a lot of offense targeted towards the midsection in this match. And, um, it's really what allowed Monty Brown to, uh, gain sympathy from the audience and to be able to fight from underneath. Because here he's the babyface. So... And you have a big jacked up dude like that. Like, how are you going to gain sympathy for this guy that could just fucking pick up the building and slam it on top of this guy? You give him an injury. You have Abyss attack him before the match like he did. And um, now we're here. So it's a good match. Like I said, you win by pinfall, submission, or getting thrown on thumbtacks. You know going into this match that the end of the match is going to be with thumbtacks. <laughs> um, they're not going to fucking tease that and have it not happen, right? Just like if you set a table in the corner, you know the match isn't going to end until somebody goes through that table. It's a detail that kind of has taken me out of some matches, both in TNA and elsewhere. But um, yeah, it was a good match, but you couldn't really get into the false finishes because you knew the tacks were inevitable and you knew that the finish wasn't going to happen until somebody got thrown on tacks, which ended up happening. So they're both beaten. They're both battered. Monty Brown goes to hit a pounce on Abyss, but Abyss dodges and throws Monty Brown through the table. An ungimmicked table, no less. Because Monty hits that thing, and man, it barely butches. It cracks a little bit, but it's not a WWE, you know, splits clean in half table. It's like he hits it, and it like bends more more so than breaks. Um, but after that, both guys are down. They both crawl to their respective bag of tacks. Brown empties his bag, but Abyss sees that Monty Brown is emptying his bag of tacks onto the ground. Or onto the mat. And Abyss just decides to throw, this, throw his bag out. He doesn't need it. I guess he's trying to take advantage of Monty Brown who doesn't see him about to attack him from behind. I guess would be the story there. They start fighting. They start jockeying for position. Monty Brown rips Abyss's shirt off. Which I can't remember happening at any other point. And boy, I absolutely understand why. <laughs> he is significantly less intimidating without a shirt on. Looks like he just left a NASCAR race or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> anyways, they keep fighting. 
Um, Abyss goes for a choke slam onto the tax. Money Brown counters, picks Abyss up, and hits him with an Alabama slam onto the thumbtacks for the win. Now, the Alabama slam that he did, or what does he call him? The Beast Slam or something? He, he, has a, he, has a, he has a name for it, but it's an Alabama slam. The Alpha Bomb? The Alpha Bomb is what he calls it, right? So he hits him with the Alpha Bomb, Alpha Alabama Slam thing, and it looked really fucking good. He really whiplashed Abyss, who was a huge dude, but the speed that he slammed him was awesome. However, he pretty much completely missed the thumbtacks. He hit it with the back of his head a little bit, and then he like realized it, and he like kind of scooted back once he landed on the mat to kind of roll a little bit in the tacks, but man... That is really unfortunate. They're building this match up. Oh, who's going to get thrown in the, th- in the thumbtacks? And then Abyss literally like grazes it and then uh gets gives Money Brown the win, I guess. So pretty entertaining match here. It's uh just too bad the ending was kind of weird. Um, Weird and awkward, but whatever the case may be, solid match. So after this, we have... Man, I think I actually forgot to mention this earlier in the show, but... You know how I said they're, they're going to show the footage of WWE later in the show, right? And they do. The legitimate footage. But all throughout the show, they have this Vince McMahon lookalike and a Triple H lookalike. They're basically parodying Vince and Triple H. They, um, you know, Vince gets out of his limo. He's wearing the suit. They don't show his face. They just show him from the back. Triple H, quote unquote gets out of the limo as well right behind him and he's wearing his tights and his boots and his knee pads he has a sledgehammer <laughs> he has he's carrying a sledgehammer he has like a towel on his head or whatever really cringy funny stuff though um this segment here the vince vince mcmahon uh fires the guy for not following the dress code um somebody like drops a camera or something and then triple h <laughs> takes his sledgehammer and just breaks it it really obviously poking fun at WWE here. And it just goes to show that they're really, really trying to get their attention. Um, but man, Vince McMahon and Triple H parody. Give that a YouTube if you want to laugh. Um, like, like later in the show, Vince is like in his dressing room with Triple H. And they're like yelling at the guy for not get, giving them the right food. Or bringing, having his dressing room set up the way he wants it. They're obviously poking fun at how power hungry Vince is. And how... A much of a daddy's boy triple h <laughs> so it's fine it's whatever just good natured jabs but after that we have a barn burner we have a tag team match glenn gilberty and johnny swinger versus johnny b bad and empire saint pat kenny nobody gave a shit about this match the wrestlers didn't care the crowd didn't care i didn't care really <laughs> Really no build to this match either, because I watched the impacts leading up to this, and there was really no build at all to it, but it's fine, it's whatever. Um, you have the former Disco Inferno and the for- former Mark Marrow in this match, so again, trying to relive those glory days and trying to get eyes on the product with these familiar faces, but at this point in their careers, Glenn Gilberti is just skinny fat. No, he is, you know... He's not going to get over not being Disco Inferno. Um, and he just doesn't care. You can tell he doesn't care. And then you have jo- Mark Marrow, who looks fucking ripped, by the way. But he's like he's like old man ripped. You know what I mean? There's like a specific type of chiseled where it's like impressive, but it's like, okay, they're, they're old though. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what Mark Marrow is. I, I can't really put my finger on what it is. Maybe it's that his his legs aren't, he clearly doesn't do leg day, and he's just all upper body. Maybe that's what it is, but Mero looks good for the most part, but um, as far as, you know, wrestling, he's he's done, man. <laughs> I, th- I think he stops wrestling shortly after this. Doesn't have a lot in the tank, I don't think, and it just is not over. Nobody cares to see Mark Mero in 2000, almost 2005, so. But the match was what it was. I kind of tuned out of it. It was kind of uh, unnecessary, kind of a waste of time. But uh, the end of the match comes with, um, oh, I should say as well, Jacqueline is the special guest referee. Ask me why. I don't know. <laughs> Literally just to get another former WWE name out there. But the end of the match comes when Disco Inferno shoves Jacqueline out of the way to hit a stunner onto Pat Kenny. Jacqueline doesn't like that. She will have no- She will have none of it. She doesn't take any guff. So Jacqueline scoop slams Disco Inferno. 
And then Mark Merrow follows up by hitting a TKO onto him for the win. If I, uh, if I never see anybody that was in this match again, I'll be perfectly okay with that. What's after that? Oh, I know. Macho Man gets abducted. Next. DDT. <laughs> yeah, so Macho Man gets abducted. Who, you know, Macho Man, by the way, is in a six-man tag later in the show. But he's abducted, so oh no. Like, and his teammates gotta be in a handicap match. Oh man, nobody cares. Um, DDP versus Raven. Speaking of nobody cares, DDP versus Raven. The build to this match is so weird, man, because they really never explained why they were feuding. Because, you know, Raven was there already. He's wrestling in a match on Impact. And then DDP makes his debut, comes out through the crowd, gets in the ring, and gives Raven a diamond cutter. Now they're all like, oh, DDP, why did you attack Raven? And then DDP's like, Raven knows, bro. And then he gets in his car and drives off. And then they do a, they have like a weird promo like a week or two before this where they're like, I guess DDP thinks that Raven held him back in WWE uh, and Raven's upset that he wasn't a champion in WCW, but DDP was. It's, weird. it's like a really flimsy backstory to this feud. And in reality, they just wanted to get two familiar names and have them have a match together on a pay-per-view. That's really what this amounted to. Um, and another element of the backstory is Eric Watts, who I don't know who Eric Watts is. As far as I know, I mean, he was in a match at the last TNA pay-per-view as a big, tall Eli Cottonwood looking guy, but apparently he has some connection to, T- to DDP. Like I said, I just don't, I didn't care to research it. I really didn't care. Um, <laughs> but, um, apparently Eric Watts plays in the, into the story somehow. Apparently, he's the reason that DDP attacked Raven, but they never really explain it that much. Um, but you have the match here, and you have Eric Watts on commentary. Now, first of all, this dude is terrible at commentary. Like I, I mentioned in my previous podcast, if you're going to have a guest on commentary, make sure that they know how to talk and make sure they're there to reinforce their character. Otherwise, it's just going to expose them as a stuttering goof, and it's going to make whatever the opposite of get over, that's what it's going to do for them. But whatever. Eric Watts on commentary, DDP versus Raven. Now, I love DDP. I love him. I do DDP yoga all the time. He's my bro. But this match was fucking slow and boring. Nobody knows who Eric Watts is. Nobody knows why these guys are fighting. Who's heel? Who's babyface? They don't really make that clear. Nobody cares about this match, just like they didn't care about the previous match. Uh, Crowd's getting fatigued a little bit, I think. And um, it was just a slow, plotting wwe style match at best um but during the towards the end of the match eric watts goes to the ring now you know he goes into this match he's you know on the side of ddp right he's a buddy of ddp so eric watts gets in the ring and fucking don west commentators do this all the time they did this with hogan even when he like turned heel when when the when a commentator is like oh he's gonna go save his friend oh he's gonna get him he's gonna get him they're just telegraphing that they're going to turn. It's so obvious, and it's frustrating that commentators don't see that pattern and don't understand that that gives it away. But, you know, whatever. So Eric Watts turns on DDP with a clothesline. Nobody gives a shit. Um, Eric Watts leaves, leaves DDP for dead. But then DDP recovers and hits Raven with a diamond cutter and wins. So the turn meant nothing at the end of the day. <laughs> so it's like, whatever. Like I said, I like DDP, but... At this point in 2004, Raven has so much more value than DDP. DDP's like, I think he's like 40-ish at this time, and he's clearly not, his best days are behind him. Whereas Raven, I feel like, has so much untapped potential. And um, it was really frustrating. It was really sad to see him lose when, you know, like I said, just has so much more long-term value, more so than DDP. But I guess they figured DDP's the bigger name here. So fuck him, give him the win. Really representative of TNA's problems over the years here, but pretty bad match here. It seems like, um, I don't know, it's almost like TNA's trying to feed off of the resentment of the fans who feel DDP was misused in WWF, which he was, you know, get, coming in, getting squashed by The Undertaker. Terrible, terrible use of a guy that really could have been a star. Um, it's almost like here in TNA, they're trying to, trying to remedy that and trying to... Um, trying to recreate what could have been with DDP, but just wasn't the same stage and wasn't didn't have the same 
energy or emotion and fans at this point didn't really care too much about either of these guys, which is unfortunate, but it was what it was, as they say. So a couple of shitty matches there, but don't worry. We got arguably the match of the night coming up here. We have actually not really. The main event is pretty objectively the match of the night, but a really good match here for the X Division Championship. Chris Sabin versus PD Williams, the champion. So I don't know if it's if this, this. This may very well have been the pay-per-view where TNA realized that the X Division is where their bread is going to be buttered. They had a lot of garbage at the beginning of the show, a lot of indifference at the beginning of the show, but this match right here was fucking awesome. And they, I know that they saw how the crowd received this match and how the internet probably received this match, and they realized, okay, X Division, that's where we got to put our focus. And I know in 2005, that is really where it starts to hit, and that's really where TNA gets their own identity, is with the X Division. And this match exemplified that very well. Um, I just love how this is built as like a main event type match. The X Division Championship isn't a mid-card title. It's a completely separate thing that gets built just as much as the main events do. And you can tell it has a big fight feel to it, which is awesome. Um, so the match gets underway, and at the beginning, it's a little slow, right? It's a little, there, it's a, there's a feel-out process. You know, the, he, the heel-face dynamic is very present because Petey Williams kind of takes control of Chris Sabin, grounds him a little bit, almost is a little boring at the beginning, but it's almost refreshing because that slow pace in the beginning made Sabin's eventual comeback feel like a big deal. You know, you're not going a thousand miles an hour from the opening bell and you're not desensitizing the audience by just going full throttle right from the beginning. You're building up to it. You're establishing who the heel is. You're making the crowd boo the heel and eagerly awaiting the babyface to fight from underneath and to get his offense in and to attempt to win the match. A basic premise as old school as old school get, but it's something that's effective and it has proven to be effective over the entire course of wrestling. Different shapes, different colors, different magnitudes of it, but it's a it's a basic premise that is almost a lost art now, nowadays. Because P.D. Williams versus Chris Sabin. You know, you look at, you, you hear that in 2020 and you, you think, oh, it's going to be a lot of flippy-dippy stuff, a lot of uh, leg slaps and super kicks and, you know, flip pile drivers and over-the-top rope planchas and stuff, but that's not what this match was. It was a classic. It was a, uh, it had an old-school feel to it with a modern twist, which is where, which is where TNA thrived, is using basic premises that worked for WCW or WWE, but then putting their own twist on it, and I think that's what this match represented so well. Um, but yeah, the match started out slow. But Chris, Chris Saban made his comeback and the crowd went fucking ape shit because they've been waiting for him to make his comeback. And when he did, he did it very well. He executed everything well. You know, he did a little die. He went to the crowd onto a little platform in the crowd and dived over the barricade to the floor onto Petey Williams. A pretty basic looking spot, but it, 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 he like kind of fed off the emotion of the crowd. He, you know, he, he's surrounded by all the fans and he jumps out from them and lands on Petey Williams. Really cool looking spot there. Um, and then pace really picked up at the end. Um, a lot of counters, a lot of high impact moves. PD Williams did this fucking Russian leg sweep. He, it was like a, a tilt a whirl. What do you call it? When you do like a tilt a whirl head scissors, somebody's yelling at their podcast because they know, but he like did a, like a spin into a Russian leg sweep that looked sexy. God, PD Williams was so good. Very underrated, in my opinion, because he made everything look so good and impactful. Very similar to Bret Hart. I, mean, I don't know if it's the Canadian genes or not, but he's almost like a high-flying version of Bret Hart, in my opinion. At least at this point in, the, in his career, he was. Really good stuff from both guys. Saban, at one point, hit a regular pile driver, which, you know, the whole story of the match, the whole backstory, is can Chris Saban counter the Canadian Destroyer? Because the Canadian Destroyer at this point has been built as this super finisher. Anybody that gets hit with it is down for a count of a thousand. There's no way anybody can get out of it if he hits you with it. It's incredibly impressive, incredibly deadly, and 
Anyone facing Petey Williams must avoid it at all cost. Chris Sabin, in the weeks building up to this, has found a counter to it. You know, because on impact for the past few weeks, Petey Williams would try to hit him. He would put him in the position to hit a pile driver, but then Chris Sabin would, you know, drop to his knees, pick Petey Williams up in a fireman's carry, and then hit him with his cradle shock finisher, which is basically a um, cross-legged Michinoku driver type move. So Chris Sabin has basically the antidote for this finisher. So the whole story here is can Petey Williams hit it, and will Chris Sabin be able to counter it to get a win for himself? But like I said, at one point in this match, Chris Sabin hits a regular pile driver onto Petey Williams, which is so, so awesome to me because it puts over how impressive the Canadian Destroyer is. Now, in reality, as far as giving the move, it's not that impressive. You see so many people do it. You see fucking Dustin Rhodes or Ricky Morton doing it or whatever. You see anybody can do it. It's really the, you know, the job of whoever's taking it to make it look good, right? But Saban just doing a traditional pile driver here, it really highlights how how special Petey Williams is for being able to hit it on people. Not anybody can do it. Not just anybody can do a Canadian Destroyer, regardless of what you might see from AEW where everybody is fucking doing it. Here, only Petey Williams does it. And when he does it, it's done. Match over. So I like that detail that they did here. Really made the Canadian Destroyer look like a super finisher here that would beat anybody. But ultimately, the Canadian Destroyer doesn't even factor in because the win comes with, you know, the ref is distracted by Scott Demore, who is Petey Williams' manager with Team Canada. And while the ref is distracted, Petey Williams pulls out some brass knucks from his trunks, punches Chris Saban with it, one, two, three. Your winner and still X-Division champion, Petey Williams. <laughs> He's fucking, I'm fine with the finish, right? I'm fine with a heel winning with a heel tactic. And maybe in 2004, brass knucks weren't so cliche. But these fucking brass knuckles looked awful. <laughs> like, they looked like a cardboard. Like, you know when you get coffee at like a gas station? Hot coffee. And then you have these little cardboard things that you put around the cup so you don't burn your hands. That's what this fucking thing looked like that he put around his fingers and hit Chris Saban with. It was kind of, I don't know, it was a little silly. But it's fine. The premise of it was fine, and the match itself, awesome. Awesome stuff. And I really think this is a a pivotal match in TNA's legacy, because I think it's at this point where they really, really hit the ground running with the X Division. Uh, really awesome stuff from both guys. Loved it. Definitely recommend it if you haven't seen this match. And uh, as far as, you know, we have two matches after that, right, on this show. Now, you might be thinking, next match is probably going to be a lit-up match, right? And a Kinda was. The Kings of Wrestling versus AJ Styles, Jeff Hardy, and Macho Man Randy Savage. However, as I alluded to previously, Macho Man has been abducted and was driven away in the trunk of a car earlier in the show. So this match is now a handicap match. AJ Styles and Jeff Hardy at a two-on-three disadvantage here. Man. Now, I mentioned... In the opening package, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are dressed as Elvis. Now, silly? Yeah. Hokey? Sure. But it's an opening video package, and we're entertaining just for entertaining's sake, so fuck it. Let them dress like Elvis, right? Well, on this semi-main event of a pay-per-view, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are still fucking dressed like Elvis. Why? We get it. You're the kings of wrestling. We heard you. You look like goofballs. This just reinforces how they're clearly not taking TNA seriously. So why is the viewer going to take TNA seriously when they see this bullshit? But, I mean, it's Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. So what are they going to tell these guys? No, you can't dress like Elvis. Fuck them. They're going to dress like Elvis or they're going to fucking walk. So it just really hurt the image of TNA here. And I don't know how long they stick around. I think Kevin Nash sticks around for a while, but I think more as a manager capacity after this. But not sure about Scott Hall. I know he's kind of going through some stuff at this point of his career. But yeah, man, the the tongue-in-cheek, I don't really give a shit about this image that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, I get what they were going with. They were trying to recreate the magic of the NWO, but it just flopped here, man. I'm sorry, it just fucking flopped. 
and it really just made TNA seem like Bush League. Speaking of Bush League, fucking Jeff Jarrett, dude. I I love the dynamic between Jarrett and Nash and Hall because it's like <laughs> Jarrett is this little brother of the other two who they're like, oh yeah, but yeah, champ. Yeah, you're the real champion here. You go get him. Like Jarrett is really taking this seriously and he really thinks he's like Triple H in 2000 here. He really thinks he's that dominant champion that everybody boos, but oh, they really, they really think he's a badass. This is not what he is. Jarrett sucks. He was never believable as a champion. He was okay on the mic. In the ring, he was okay at best. I can't think of a Jeff Jarrett match that I really loved. He made his name off his, his character and his talking, which he was just like a a lighter version of Triple H or like the NWO or, you know, uh, like a Ric Flair. He's like a budget version of Ric Flair mixed in with a little modern day Cody Rhodes in the worst ways. And I just loved how like serious Jeff Jarrett was taking it when he's flanked by two guys who just don't give a shit and they're wearing fucking one piece Memphis rock and roll gear. And then you have a young AJ Styles who was the star of this match and Jeff Hardy who was fine, but like Scott Hall, he's going through through some stuff in this point of his life and really isn't at the at his peak performance here. But you know he did enough to get by. He got all the signature moves in in this match, which is really what the crowd wants to see can't really complain about that too much but like i said aj styles the star of this match really um showed a lot of fire and um showed a lot of passion which wasn't really shown by anybody else in this match (laughs) but the uh and like i said jeff hardy you know he even said in his dvd that came out like a 10 years ago or so he just wasn't passionate about wrestling in 2004 2005 he just didn't care and that kind of showed in this match but he was able to get through it. But ultimately, the end of the match comes with Macho Man Randy Savage escaping from the abductors. Comes out to the ring. He's wearing black pants and a black sweater, black gloves, whatever. He's old as fuck at this point. Can't blame him. Macho Man comes out. He kind of gets the hot tag, fights off everybody for like a minute. And then um, all the baby faces lock on sleeper holds on all of the heels. Macho Man has Jarrett in a sleeper hold, but Jarrett starts to counter, goes for a sunset flip. Macho Man counters into a half-assed little cradle pin and beats Jeff Jarrett. So in 2004, Macho Man Randy Savage beats the world champion of TNA. Now, is there a world title match coming after this? I honestly don't remember. I look forward to seeing if that happens or not. But strange booking. Really expected them to push AJ a little more here or even Jeff, or just give the heels a win to try to have some semblance of heat, which at this point they just had none, but they gave Macho Man the win here over the champion, so I guess there's a plan for that. Who knows? But um, kind of a boring match overall. It's really just Nash and Hall getting their shit in, doing the Nash and Hall thing. Hardy's not really into it. Jeff Jarrett sucks. AJ Styles tried to make some something of it, but... One man can only do so much, so weird, weird main event match here, or a semi-main event, I guess, but it was what it was. But after that, we have, we finally, finally have gotten here, Cookie Gate. <sighs> uh, this was cringe on cringe, dude. The, the most TNA angle that they have ever done. This represents what TNA was and why they were never able to rise above a certain level. They were trying too hard to get the attention of WWE, and it really just made them seem like Bush League here. Um, so you have Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas, Tracy, and Abyss. This segment opens up with them walking outside of some building. I guess it's where WWE is filming a commercial. Abyss is carrying balloons, which is kind of hilarious. Tracy is carrying a plate of cookies. Now, Shane Douglas makes a joke says tracy has a plate of cookies and a few muffins too (laughs) talking about her tits do you get it talking about her tits he thought it was so funny that he made the exact same joke at least twice maybe three times in this like five minute segment shut up god (laughs) and then so they they walk into the building warehouse it's like a warehouse type of building our truth conan and road dog are there 
the uh the three live crew all three of those guys are ex wwf guys by the way in case they're keeping track at home they're it's like it's like a cater it's like catering i guess because there's like a buffet of food our truth conan road dog they're all trying to get some food they're asking around for vince ask they, they they're like trying to get vince to give them the blessing to get some food or whatever road dog says mahi mahi at least 15 times in this segment we got it we heard you cry <laughs> but i think um so they blur out some people's faces one of them is definitely ray mysterio and i think another one was eddie guerrero who obviously are both friends of conan so i don't know if they were just doing a favor for conan or what but they're really the only significant names that appeared here um but ultimately it just amounted to them walking around catering asking for mahi mahi and asking where vince is that's all that's really all this was they've been building up to this for weeks on impact and they built this whole entire pay-per-view up to this and it was just abyss carrying balloons shane douglas making a muffins joke about tracy's tits twice and road dog asking for mahi mahi 30 dollars, please <laughs> god uh, give give it give this a youtube if you haven't seen this if nothing else it's hilariously entertaining because it just shows where tna struggled so much to create a buzz and why they struggled so much but they make up for it because after this they have the main event which you legitimately can make an argument that this is the best match in tna history that's saying a lot and there's a lot of other other matches that you could make that argument for but i think this is a strong definitely at least like top 10 in tna history six sides of steel america's most wanted versus triple x james storm and chris harris versus christopher daniels and elix skipper now (laughs) the package so apparently these guys have had a steel cage match before triple x and amw were two of the top teams in tna at this time and had a rivalry that spanned like two years so the video package for this match showed the match that they had 17 months ago back when they had a four-sided ring man that rickety ass steel cage that they had back then oh my god it was literally like the four sides weren't even attached to each other like they were just freestanding and these guys were going up to the top and standing at the top and jumping off of it like who what the fuck what are you doing man you're out of your mind but we're back here it's it's almost two years later it's like a year and a half later six sides six sides of steel they're putting over how the six sides aspect of it makes it the most dangerous cage match ever which i guess there's less give because the sides are shorter so there's less there's less play in the cage there's less rebound to it which i guess is pretty legitimate but i don't know if it makes a whole hell of a lot of difference but whatever so the backstory here is that whoever loses this match can no longer team together in tna so this is the culmination of their rivalry, their two-year rivalry, and whoever wins, wins, and whoever loses is done. Now, Christopher Daniels, Elix Skipper, Chris Harris, James Storm. If I would have asked you in December of 2004, if I would have told you that one of these guys is going to end up being a world champion in TNA, who would you have picked? I probably would have picked Christopher Daniels myself. If not him, probably Chris Harris. And if not him, probably Elix Skipper. But nope, James Storm is the only guy here that ended up being a main event world champion here. Crazy to think of that. But all these guys are super talented, had great chemistry together. And this one was a bloody one, like right off the bat. Blood, I I forget what order. I think Christopher Daniels bleeds first. And James Storm, Chris Harris, Elix Skipper, they're all bleeding within like four or five minutes of this match starting, right? Which I get. They really want to put over how dangerous this match is and how much of a blood blood feud this really is. So I think it's almost kind of, it's weird looking back on it because you don't see blood that much nowadays. It's weird seeing how much they just threw it around. It almost makes me glad they don't do this that much anymore. But I think this match in this context, it made sense and it really helped make this match what it was so they're going at it in the ring and there's at one point chris harris gets handcuffed to the corner so it's basically a handicapped situation now where uh, christopher daniels and elix skipper are just beating the shit out of james storm christopher daniels has the key to those handcuffs around his neck and like a lanyard 
he stabs Storm in the head with it. You know, casual. So it's really bloody, really gruesome. Um, what, This match has one of my favorite calls from Don West. They're beating on James Storm. They're throwing him into the cage. And you hear Don West. Oh, he's going to look like a piece of pizza when this is all over. God, I love Don West. I love his lack of improv skills. But his energy just added to this match. Added to every match. So eventually James Storm, James Storm makes a comeback. Knocks both those guys down. Is able to get the key off of Daniels. Give it to Chris Harris. Chris Harris unlocks himself from the corner. And now he's back in the match. They're fighting all over the place. They're hitting all their finishing moves. They're hitting each other's finishing moves on each other. And uh, they're fighting on top of the cage. And we get this moment that... Even if you've never followed TNA, you probably have seen this moment. James Storm is sitting on top of the cage. He's bloody. He's beaten. Elix Skipper climbs on top of the cage, like, next to him. Elix Skipper, probably like uh, six, seven, eight feet away from him. Elix Skipper walks from one corner of the six-sided ring to the next corner, walks the top of the cage, walks all the way over to James Storm, and hits him with a Hurricane Rana off of the top of the cage. My words can't <laughs> describe how impressive that was and how good it looked. Absolutely insane, because that could have gone so wrong. Elix could have fallen to the outside. Fucking, he could have botched the, the Hurin Kanrana and fallen on his head. James Storm could have fallen on his head. So many things could have gone wrong there, but it ended up absolutely perfect and absolutely awesome look if you go to impact's youtube channel right now they're like opening you know how like videos will have like a few seconds of opening to the videos right mike Tenay's call of that was the most impressive thing i've ever seen in professional wrestling that soundbite is from this spot right here and that spot gets shown on so many video packages even to this day on impact absolutely crazy crazy stuff and i'm happy because you know elix got concussed in their match at the last pay-per-view, and he had a really poor performance. His timing was off, he was blowing spots, and really made the match one of the worst matches of the show. But Elix, not only this spot, but so many other spots in this match, really shined here and really made a name for, for himself, if nothing else, for this spot alone. So, awesome stuff. Definitely give that a watch if you've never seen it, but you probably have. Match. The end of the match comes shortly after that, when... um. And uh, Christopher Daniels ends up getting handcuffed to the corner. Love that continuity because the past few weeks, the handcuff has been kind of become a staple of Triple X. You know, they, they handcuffed on impact. They handcuffed Chris Harris to the corner while they beat the shit out of James Storm. And then at the end of their match, the last pay-per-view, they handcuffed both of them and were attacking both of them as they were handcuffed. They handcuffed them at the beginning of this match. The end of this match comes when Karma strikes... And they have to eat their own medicine. Eat their own medicine? They have a taste of their own medicine by Christopher Daniels getting handcuffed and basically leaving Elix exposed to which AMW hits the powerplex onto Elix, which is Triple X's finisher. So really rubbing it in. And that is where the pinfall comes. Awesome storytelling. Awesome build. And just a great culmination of a great rivalry here. Awesome main event to an otherwise weird show. And like I said, this match will go down as one of the best matches of TNA in their entire history. Awesome stuff from these guys. Triple X no longer can team. This is where Christopher Daniels really begins to shine because he enters the X division, really makes a name for himself there. And, you know, piggybacking off of the X division title match on this show and how well that was received. After this, this is really a pivotal point because this is where TNA... Like I said, they really commit to the X Division, and Christopher Daniels is a big part of that, ultimately, along with AJ Styles and Samoa Joe. So, a lot of good stuff happening in the future with that, and AMW still has a lot of gas in the tank as a tag team as well. So, awesome, awesome match. Match of the night, for sure. And really made this pay-per-view worth watching. A lot of weird stuff. Like I said, the bad was very bad, but the good was very good. And, you know, going into this podcast, I was like, man, this show is kind of whatever. But now that I'm talking myself through it, I'm realizing how pivotal of a show this was. It really determined where TNA would go from here and really showed where TNA was going to find their success. 
And I think they learned from a lot of their mistakes that they made on this show. And there was a lot of them. But I think TNA learned a lot from the show. And as we get into 2005, that's when TNA starts cooking. Maybe not in ratings. You know, they were never a, a serious threat to WWE. But they gained a, a strong cult following. And it was it's an era that people remember to this day. So looking forward to getting to that. Thank you guys once again for listening, checking out some alternatives in wrestling from the 2000s. I had a good time. I am hard. Oh, 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 o